0: Good evening, everyone. It is great to be with you and speaking to you this evening. My name is Josh. I'm one of the clergy here at St. Nick's, and it's good to be together tonight. Over the last few weeks, we've been looking at Jesus' Nazareth manifesto, his powerful declaration of what he had come to do and how he was going to do it. And we've seen that it all flowed from his anointing in the Spirit. And today is Pentecost, the day where we as the church recognize and acknowledge the coming of the Spirit among the church in Acts on the day of the Jewish Festival of First Fruits. That moment when the Spirit descended on, that descended on Jesus and fueled his ministry, descends and falls on his church. And to unpack the significance of that together, we'll be taking a look at the passage which accounts that very moment in Acts 2 verses 1 to 12. For context, the disciples, they've walked with Jesus through his ministry. They've seen him do incredible things, signs and wonders of the coming kingdom of God of which he spoke. Then they've seen him arrested, crucified, buried, and then gloriously resurrected. He's then explained to them that he's going back to the Father and ascended, but that after this, the advocate would come, the Holy Spirit would come, And when it does, they'll receive the power to be Jesus' witnesses. And the disciples have gone back, and they've clumped together in a room in Jerusalem, wondering what on earth is next for them. Then we come to our passage in Acts 2. It says this, "'When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting.'" Aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it that each of us hears them in our native language? Parthians, Medes, and Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, and Pamphylia, Egypt and parts of Libya near Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues, amazed and perplexed. They asked one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? Great question, random crowd member. What does this mean? Well, we see in this passage that the Holy Spirit brings unity. When the Spirit moves, unity follows. And the first point I want to make this evening is that the Spirit brings unity between one another. It doesn't take much of a look around our world to see that we divide ourselves on just about any grounds we can think of. Race, gender, ethnicity, socioeconomic background, sexuality, religion, age, culture, political beliefs. Think of the last few times you voted on something that mattered. Did you personally know anyone that voted differently to you? Usually not, because we live so much of our lives in our little segmented echo chambers. The world around us continually uses diversity as grounds for division and disunity. Our society is immensely divided, and yet this is not the way of God. The God who created outstanding variety burns for unity among his creation. And the agent of this unity is his Holy Spirit. As a church, um, as the church, I think we know that. Yet we can so often claim we're more unified, but so frequently still end up divided. Both inside the church, between churches, and amongst the people that as a church we're supposed to be serving. I mean, look at our country, the church divides on ideology, theology, style, stance on certain issues, and that's just the UK, let alone the global church. Divisions run throughout, but this passage shows us another way. To understand the significance of what's happening in this passage, we first need to dive way back in the narrative, almost to the very beginning, and look at the accounts of the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. God has created this perfect, good, and beautiful creation, symbolized by the Garden of Eden. But sin and brokenness have entered the world. Humanity has ceased to look for God for their meaning and identity, and have instead turned in on themselves. Appointing themselves their own God, chaos ensues. Outside of Eden and close relationship with God, death plagues humanity. And so we come to Babel, where we read... Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. As people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. They said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used bricks instead of stone and tar for mortar. Then they said, come, let's build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language, they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go and confuse their language so they will not understand one another. So the Lord scattered them from there over the whole earth and they stopped building the city. That is why it is called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world. And from there, the Lord scattered them across the face of the whole earth. Humanity without God have hit rock bottom. In an attempt to rebuild Eden without God, to reach the heavens on their own terms, they decide to build a tower together to get there like that could ever work. And yet seemingly we could say they've got a unity of purpose, right? They're all speaking one language. They're working on the same project. They seem unified. But let me ask this, when making a name for ourselves is the goal, can we ever actually be unified? When it's about elevating yourself, how can you be truly unified with others? How often do we see that Babel mindset in our society today, even in the church? Posting that Instagram story about that social justice issue to be seen to, rather than actually doing anything to address the problem and bring unity. Or how everything's rosy between our colleagues until there's only one spot up for promotion. Advocating so we look good, decrying injustice without recognising our own capabilities and privileges. Wanting churches to be united in one cause with one mission, uh, yet obviously knowing that we're the ones who know the right way of doing everything. In essence, we make unity and diversity all about ourselves, a self-serving process. Without God's Spirit, it will only ever be a mirage of unity, a cheap knockoff that doesn't hold up when push comes to shove. Without God at the center, without the Spirit working within, human unity is only ever about personal advancement. God knows it'll all end in tragedy, and so he steps in, And Babel shows us that the half-finished city is the perfect illustration of humanity's attempts to live in unity without God. So what do we see at Pentecost? What does our passage show us about this? Well, in Acts 2, we see Luke beautifully highlight the reversal of Babel. When the Spirit falls on God's people at Pentecost, we see the beginning of the reversal of Babel. Rather than multiple languages leaving people scattered, we see the Spirit enabling God's people to speak all tongues and dialects, one unified message, the message of Jesus. Utterly amazed, they ask, aren't these people who are speaking Galileans? Then how is it each one of us hears us in our native language, skipping all the names? We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. Why is this happening? Because the Spirit is a spirit of unity. When the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, the people's difference ceases to be a dividing line. It becomes instead a joyful celebration. Each individual language and culture are honoured. Note that the message of Jesus went out in all tongues. The Spirit didn't enable the crowd to understand Aramaic. The Spirit isn't helping people to assimilate. No, each tongue is honoured. Each culture is honoured. They hear it in their own language. The Spirit of God is the one who goes the distance to unify. And each individual is honoured by the Spirit. And as that happens, each one is unified under the good news of God in Jesus are unified under the glorious truth that you don't have to work your way up to the heavens but that God has come down and the Spirit is here to enable you to live in that truth and that unity day by day. We love because he first loved us. We are unified to one another through the Spirit because God first unified himself to us in Jesus. So we see that community, especially community across earthly barriers, is a deeply spiritual endeavor, and it only comes about through an outpouring of the Spirit. It is the Spirit who enables us to live that true unity, not the broken Babel kind, but the kind that Jesus modeled, the kind where we forsake ourselves for the sake of others where we forego the glory to honor God's image in our fellow humanity, when we delight together as creatures of the same creator. This is the unity we see break out of Pentecost, and the world has never seen anything like it before. In Zephaniah 3, we get this amazing image of that work that started at Pentecost being completed, what will happen in the end when that work is finished, It says this, then I will purify the lips of the people that all may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. That is the call of the people of God, to resist that shallow mirage of unity that we see at Babel and to live the true selfless unity of the Spirit, striving to break down barriers in Jesus' name. As the Spirit makes us brothers and sisters with people of every background, tribe and tongue. Because the Spirit of God unites them together with one another and calls us back to Eden together. Not via a tower of our own making, but through Jesus. So we see at Pentecost that the Spirit unites us to one another. The second point I want to make this evening is that the Spirit unites us with ourselves. What do I mean by that? When I was a bit younger in Devon, I had a mate of mine that the rest of us used to find so funny. Because he would adopt like multiple personas whenever he was talking to the current girl in his life. And one day we were at the pub, and I'll admit my friend is a bit of a rough diamond, so do bear with me. Um, and the, his story went like this. He was telling us this story, and I'll, I'll show you what he did. He basically said, lads, you would not believe it. On Friday night, yeah, I was in the Crown." And it's absolutely rammed in there, right? And I was at the bar four points deep. And I looked across and I saw this geezer, right? This absolute creep at the bar, just harassing this poor girl who was in Mrs. Denham's tutor group when we were at school. You know, you know the one I mean, yeah. And this absolute creep is just harassing her. And anyway, before, before he knows what's going on, I'm over there and I'm right up in his face, and I'm telling him, mate, what you're doing is bang out of order. And I'm, and I'm really getting, getting up in his grill about it and calling him out for it. And anyway, things get really heated and I think eventually, you know what, I've had enough of this. So I just lean back and I just headbutt him straight in the face. And anyway, he goes down like a sack of spuds, boys. At this point, his phone rings and he says, hello. Oh, hello, sweetie. How was your horse riding lesson? Oh, yes, yeah, so lovely. Yes, I'm just out for a coffee with, with Jack and, jo- and Jordan Josh. Yes, oh, I miss you too. Yes, I'll speak to you later. Bye, bye, bye. Yeah, and then anyway, and then this geezer smashed a glass over the back of my head. He used to drop into a completely different persona whenever he spoke to the current girl in his life. It was absolutely bizarre to see. And that's a pretty extreme and ridiculous example, I know. But the point I'm trying to make is there is an internal conflict going on in each one of us between two characters paul explains it like this in galatians 5 so i say walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh for the flesh desires what is contrary to the spirit and the spirit what is contrary to the flesh they are in conflict with one another what's paul saying well he's saying that you were made in the image of god to live a full and beautiful life in relationship with him. He's saying that the spirit is calling you to that. It's drawing you back to the identity. The spirit is guiding you to be more and more the person that God made you to be. But also that there's this other drive going on, which Paul calls the flesh, which is driving us to self-satisfaction, feeding us lies, warping our desires. Be your own God. Build your own tower to the heavens. You do you. And that they are constantly, these two desires, are constantly in conflict with one another. I can tell you that as a preacher stood up here right now, my true identity in God wants to glorify God with my words and inspire you with the truth of Scripture, the truth of the message of Jesus, to love Jesus more deeply and to glorify God. But I'd be lying if I denied that there's a temptation there to make it all about me and glorify myself. When I walk up here, each time I preach, I pray in my head repeatedly, more of you, less of me, more of you, less of me. Because there's a flip side of that coin. There's a track in there somewhere that's saying, less of him, more of me. I don't know what you relate to. I want to go to my group tonight and grow in my faith, but I also think I deserve to use my long day as an excuse to sit here and binge Netflix. I want to follow God's call on my life, but I also want that call. I think that call should make me look successful to those around me. I want to shine the light of Jesus to my friends that don't know him, but I also want to appear the same as them. I want to honor my spouse and the vows I made to them, but I also want other people to find me attractive. I want to process my day with my community and most importantly with the Lord, but I also want to just deal with my day with a glass of wine or two. I want to spend time with Jesus, but I also want that extra time in bed. I don't know what it is for you. Fill in the gaps. I know I can relate to all of the above. The spirit and the flesh, if we want to call them that, are at war with one another. And it is the spirit of God that enables that war to be fought and to be won. See, the spirit isn't like Father Christmas, who rocks up on his special day each year, doles out some gifts then, and is gone. The spirit fell on the church at Pentecost and remains here with us. To join in that fight, to speak truth to encourage us, to shape us day in and day out in every one of those moments. The Spirit of God unites us with our true self, ourselves in the perfect image of God, ourselves uncorrupted by sin. It is the Spirit that helps us battle the flesh. In fact, it's the Spirit that lets us know even that that battle's going on. Without the Spirit, we wouldn't have a clue. We'd just be losing to the flesh. Paul goes on to say, The fruit of the Spirit is this love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, and faithfulness, gentleness, and self control. Against such things there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Keep in step with the Spirit. Daily invite the Spirit to mold you and shape you into the image of Jesus, that image that you are made in, your true self. And day by day let the Spirit shape your desires. We see it with Peter in our passage. Scholars think the disciples were basically hiding again, just like after the crucifixion. Jesus had come back, and that was amazing, but then he'd left again, and the disciples are still terrified of the Romans, and Jesus isn't there to stick up for us anymore. So they've kind of gone back to their classic stance of hiding somewhere together, and probably playing Uno, if I know anything about Christians. Because despite what Jesus has said, Peter's flesh wants him to hide, to self-preserve. He's saying, you don't want to be killed by the Romans, mate. Hide in here. The flesh is winning. And then the Spirit comes and Peter isn't hiding anymore. He's out on the street preaching the word. He preaches with such fervor in the power of the Spirit that people thought that he was drunk. And he opens the scriptures powerfully way beyond his own knowledge level. And verse 41 says this, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. The Spirit enables Peter to fight against his flesh, telling him to take care of himself. And instead, he honors what God is calling him to do. He glorifies God instead of himself, and 3,000 people meet with Jesus. The Spirit within him unites him with the man that God made him to be. And the Spirit does the same for us now, day in, day out. Invite the Spirit to fill you afresh this week, to remind you of who you were made to be, to give you the strength to put Jesus on his rightful throne in your life, and to follow where he leads, and we will see our lives transformed, our true identities in Jesus set free, our city on fire for God, and the people of this world unified with one another and to God. Maybe it's as simple as saying today, Spirit of God, fill me up. Remind me of who I truly am. Help me see myself as you see me. Help me live as you're calling me to live. Maybe for you it's committing to do that all week, not just tonight. Asking the Spirit to shape you in those moments where those flesh desires arise. Committing to seeking the Spirit in those moments and asking the Spirit to shape your desires in the nitty-gritty of day-to-day life this week. Maybe for you it's repenting of disunity and inviting the Spirit to call you into unity. One that doesn't come from a place of self, but rather comes from an abundance of the love of Jesus within you. Maybe you're being called to become a bridge builder today in the power of the Spirit, and you need to respond to that. Maybe you're being called tonight to reconciliation, to repair the wounds of disunity, and to sow unity in their place. Maybe for you that's a personal thing, where you've been involved with disunity. Or maybe for you it's a broader thing, where God is placing on your heart an area of division in the world around you, in society, that he's calling you to act in, to speak up in, to stand up for. What would it look like for you to invite the Spirit to call you into deeper unity? What would it look like for us as a church to be called deeper into unity, to speak to the world by our unity and not our division. Because the spirit of God that was poured out at Pentecost and continues to be poured out to the church today is a spirit that unifies us to one another, that unifies us with our true God-given identities and that flows from us, it all flows from us being unified to God through Jesus. Why don't I pray? I'd invite you to stand if you're able. Lord, we thank you for the outrageous gift of your Holy Spirit that you outpour freely whenever we ask. Lord, we thank you for the miraculous events that followed your spirit being outpoured at Pentecost. And we thank you that it is the same Holy Spirit that have shaped um, the faith of Christians since the early church to now, each day, in the day-to-day of life. Lord, we thank you that we can cry out to you for your Holy Spirit and you pour it out so freely. Thank you that the life that comes from life in your spirit. And I pray for each one of us here, Lord, that we would be more and more called to life in the spirit. More and more called to the crucifixion of the flesh. More and more called to fight against disunity. And that each day we would be more unified with one another in your spirit. And more unified with our God-given identities as the people you made us to be. And in doing so, we would find freedom in Jesus' name. Amen.